Greetings and welcome to the Cross Home. My name is Tsepo Mafata and today we will be continuing with Romans 9 and let us get through straight away to that. We, in the past, uh, already started with Romans 1 to Romans 9 from verse 1 to uh, 13 and today we'll be really starting from verse 14. And just for a recap, we saw that in the first five verses, Paul says that his heart is full of pain, he's got uh, great sorrow, and the reason is that because he wishes that he himself was accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of his brothers, telling us that uh, the, 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 the Israelites and, 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 and in the main had rejected Jesus Christ and therefore under a curse and and that that brought him a lot of pain and and, and, and so and he said he said they have they have rejected Christ and are cursed despite the promises that have been made to them and promises that would come through them the main one really being that to them belong the patriarchs and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. So his, his heart is in pain, he's got great sorrow, because in the main, the Israelites, the Jews, had rejected Jesus Christ and therefore uh, were under a curse. And then he goes into verse 6 and sort of preempts a question or answers a hypothetical question or a question that he might have had before, been, been asked in, in other settings, that um, if, if, if God made all these promises to Israel, and, and if all these promises were made for Israel and to Israel by God, and now that Israel has rejected Jesus Christ, does it mean that the promises of God, or the plans of God to Israel, or in actual event, the word of God has failed? Because now the, the Israelites have actually not accepted Jesus Christ, but rather have rejected him. And, God, and, 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 and Paul then goes from verse 6 pretty much to about verse 13 to defend the statement that the word of God has not failed simply because the Israelites have rejected Jesus Christ. He says, although the promises were made to Israel and Israel have rejected uh, uh, Jesus Christ, it does not mean that the word of God has failed. And he gives us two reasons for that and, and goes to the uh, to Genesis pretty much to go and show us that this does not mean that the word of God has failed. He, fa he firstly makes this statement that not everyone who is an Israelite belongs to the chosen Israel. And he defends that by giving two examples, that of Abraham that it is not all children that were born through Abraham that belong to the chosen Israel. In fact, it is only those children that come to Isaac, not Ishmael, the other child of Abraham. So, in other words, the chosen Israel is not every child of Abraham, but it is only those children that are born from Abraham through Isaac. And the second reason he says, now, now talking about Isaac, the, the son of Abraham, he says, even with Isaac, it is not all children of Isaac that belong to the chosen Israel, but rather it is actually Jacob 
that God chose. And so therefore, the children of Israel will follow from Abraham through Isaac and not Ishmael, and from Isaac through Jacob and not Esau. And this is the choice that God made. And he says he made this choice between Jacob and Esau, not because there's something that Jacob or Esau did wrong or good here in verse 11, but he did this in order that the, that his purpose of election might continue. So when he chose Isaac, when he chose Jacob, God had a purpose, and his purpose was for election. And when he chose this, it was so that that purpose that God had of election might, might continue. And not continue based on the works that those that are being chosen did or did not do, but solely because of him, God, who calls or who decides to choose whomever he, he wishes. So God clearly says, I have chosen Abraham, and I have chosen Isaac, and I have chosen Jacob, and it has nothing to do with what they did or did not do. It is purely based on my purposes of election. And this brings us to today's discussion from verse 14. And then again here, Paul either preempts this question or he has had this question before and, and he, 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 he then, before it's even asked, he then asks it and then answers it. He says, what, what, what shall we say then? This then comes from the very fact that he just said that not all Israel belongs to Israel. It is only those belong to the chosen Israel. Sorry. It is only those that come from Abraham to Isaac and through Jacob. Now he says, if that is the case, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? In other words, is God has God done, done something wrong? Or has God been unrighteous? If he chooses others and not others, is there something wrong with God's purpose of election? That's pretty much what 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 the person that would be arguing with Paul would be asking. If God can choose certain people among the Israelites to be among his chosen Israel and not choose others, is that fair? You know, is there is there is that not unrighteous? Is that not injustice? If in fact they, those people are chosen not because of what they've done or have not done. So in other words, someone like uh, Esau would be doomed from 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 even when before they are born, uh, not to be chosen. So there's nothing that Esau could have done to have been part of uh, the chosen Israel because even before he was born. Um, 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 God decided to choose Jacob. So this choice that is not based on the person being chosen or on the works of the person being chosen, is that not unfair? Is that not injustice? And Paul says, by no means. No way, absolutely not. There is no injustice on God's part. And you will see that Paul gives us two reasons why he says that there is no injustices on God's part. In other words, he defends God's right to choose whomever he chooses, not based on anything that that person has done or 
not have done. And in, in example in, in, in of, of Jacob and Esau, choosing Jacob even before Jacob and Esau were born. He says, first of all, for God has said to Moses, and this is a quotation pretty much uh, 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 from, from the Old Testament. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. God says, I have the right to choose on whom I will have mercy, and I have the right to decide who I have compassion on. So then, because of this right that I have as God, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. In other words, I have the right to choose whoever I want to have mercy on and whoever I want to have compassion on. And it has nothing to do with the will of the person that has been chosen. It has nothing to do with that. The person that is being chosen participates, doesn't participate at all in God's decision on whom he has mercy on and on whom he has compassion on. It does not depend on human will, but rather it depends on God who has the right to give mercy. To whomever he wills. This is the first reason. There is no injustice in God's part if he chooses whomever he chooses to form part of his election purpose because he's got the right to have mercy on whomever he wants to have mercy on and he's got the right to have compassion on whomever he has compassion on. So the person receiving compassion, the person receiving mercy that is, his receiving of mercy and his receiving of compassion has nothing to do with his will. It has everything to do with God. Secondly, for the scripture says, Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I, God, have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Pharaoh's purpose, Pharaoh's hardening, Pharaoh's refusal, Pharaoh's stubbornness was, for, was, was, was part of God's plan for God says he has raised him up for that purpose. He has raised Pharaoh for the purpose of showing power through him. So Pharaoh's stubbornness, Pharaoh's uh, refusal to let go of the children of Israel was part of God's purpose. In fact, he was raised for that very purpose. And his stubbornness was meant to show, for God, to show his power. Secondly, for God's name to be proclaimed in all the earth. So Pharaoh's hardening, which if you read the Genesis, you will realize God hardened his heart, and God hardens his heart. So he was raised up. He was born in this world and was hardened for the purpose of God showing his power to him, and secondly, so that God's 
name but be proclaimed in all the earth. So Pharaoh, although from a human point of view, one can say he hardened his heart and he was stubborn and so on, but all of that was God's plan so that he might show the power through him, his power through him, and that his name be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, who's the God, has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So now, looking at Pharaoh's example, the fact that God hardened him and made him, hardened his heart and made him not to realize how stubborn he was against God, not to realize that he was actually fighting a losing battle, he hardened his heart. And in verse 18 here, Paul says, he's God that right to harden his heart. He hardened his heart so that through his stubbornness, through his refusal, God's power might be displayed and secondly, God's name might be proclaimed. So then, God has the right to have mercy on whomever he wills. And he has the right for his own purpose to harden whomever he wills. Now, what does this mean, he hardened Pharaoh? Does it mean that he made Pharaoh do the wrong things? No. He simply made Pharaoh not to realize that the wrong things that he was doing, that he wanted to do anyway, were wrong and he needed to repent. So all that God did is he removed his ability to repent. He did not give him the ability to repent so that he can turn and realize, I am wrong. I should actually obey God. I should actually release the children of Israel. He hardened his heart so that his heart is incapable of turning from the, the evil that it had towards the good. He allowed him to continue in what his heart wanted to do at that stage. And what his heart wanted to do at that stage was to actually disobey God and refuse to let go of the children of Israel. So Paul is saying God has that right to harden whoever he wants to harden and to have mercy to give repentance and to give uh, salvation to, to, to whoever he wants. So Paul gives two reasons. He says the reason why God can choose certain people and not choose other people is because he has the right to do that. Not only does he have the right to have mercy, but he also has the right to harden. And both cases, it is for his own purpose. And the hardening and the massive mercy giving has nothing to do with the person either receiving the hardening or receiving the mercy. Because it does not depend on human will. But it depends on God. So therefore, there is no injustice 
on God's part because he has the right to do this. There is no injustice on God's part because as God, he is entitled, he has the right to do what he decides for his own purpose should happen. So therefore, there is no injustice on God's part. And then, another question comes. He says, in verse 19, You will say then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? This question is simply saying, Okay, Paul, you're saying he's got the right to choose uh, whoever he wants. Uh, and it does not depend on the people. It depends on God who has the right to do all these things. So, if he has the right to harden people's heart, if he has the right to have mercy... Why does he still find fault? Why does God still find fault? Because, for example, if he has hardened Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh refused to do all of them to, to release Israel and Pharaoh became stubborn, surely it is not Pharaoh's fault. If it is God who hardened him, how can it be Pharaoh's fault? For how could Pharaoh have resisted God's will? I mean, he's God. After all, and this is the question that Paul now poses in verse 19. He says, if it is God who hardens people, and if it is God who has mercy on people, and if, if, if this hardening and this mercy has nothing to do with the people receiving the mercy or receiving the hardening, those that are hardened and end up rejecting God, not doing what God wants, how can God still find fault if he's the one that hardened them? And in verse 20, Paul says, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? In a very simple sense. In a very simple sense. Paul is saying to the person asking the question in verse 19. Why does God still find fault if he is the one hiding in hearts? Paul says you have no right to ask back, to answer back to God. Being just a mere man. Who are you to debate with God, being just a mere man? Paul says, you have no right to dispute or speak, speak back to God and challenge Him. Because He is God and you are mere men. The way I see it, Paul says, this is where you start to go over the line. This is where the line stands. You need to realize you are a man and he is God. And you being man has no right to, push, to, to, to challenge God, to question him in such a way, not to find information, but in such a way as to say, God, you are wrong. The intention of this question is not to find information. The intention of this question is that 19 is to challenge God's intellect. Is to challenge God's wisdom. 
is to challenge God's way of doing things. It is not to find information. And Paul rightfully answers it and says, Who are you? Just being a mere man, thinking you can challenge God. And he says, Well, what is molded? In other words, now he's talking about the clay and the potter. Will what the potter has molded says to his molder, why have you made me like this? How can I create something, mold something, and then that thing that I just created turns around and says, but wait a minute, why have you done to me? So Paul likens us to something that is molded. And we do not have the right to ask our creator and question. Ask in such a way that we question his wisdom. Ask in such a way that we question and try to challenge his way of doing things. God has the right to choose whomever he wills for his own purpose. He's got the right to have mercy on whomever he wills. He's got the right to harden whomever he wills. And we do not have the right to challenge him on his purposes. We have the right to ask questions, yes, to find out more, but not to ask questions in order to prove that God is wrong and we as just mere men are right. What is molded cannot say to its molder, why have you made me like this? And in verse 21, he says, has the Porter, no right over the clay? If I'm the porter and I have the clay and the clay is mine, don't I have a right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Don't I have the right? If I've got clay from the same clay, I can take some of that clay and decide to make vessels that are going to be for honorable use and make from the same uh, uh, lump of clay, make other vessels for dishonorable use. Don't I have the right to do that? And the answer is, of course. So if God has created certain people for the sole purpose of hardening them in order that his purpose might be achieved through their hardening, who are we to say that he doesn't have that right? If we are his creation, doesn't he have the right to create people for honorable use and others for dishonorable use? Doesn't he have that right? Just like the porter has the right over his slave. Why do we want to take away the right of God as the creator as if to say that somehow the creation can, must come into a meeting with God and decide, okay, let's see where we can have some common ground. The creator cannot have common ground with the creation. The creation exists for the sole purposes of the creator. And the creation cannot question the methods, the wisdom, and the intellect of the Creator. Just like the clay has no right to 
question the porter why you have made me like this why am I solely raised up for the purpose of being hardened so that your purpose is God can be realized so in other words if if the the, the clay had the right over the the, the, the porter and if the molded had the right over the molder, then Pharaoh would then turn around and say, God, I question your wisdom. Why you could simply raise me to be hardened? And since we are talking about here, let us not forget what we are talking about. We are talking about why has Israel rejected God, Jesus Christ? Why has Israel rejected Jesus Christ? Does it mean the word of God has failed? Why has Israel not been saved? Why have they rejected Jesus Christ? Why have they not seen salvation? Does it mean the word of God has failed? And Paul is saying, no. The word of God has not failed because not all Israel was meant to be saved from the very onset. It was only those that came through Abraham, through Jacob, through Isaac and through Jacob that were children of the promise. And only those would be saved. Why? Because God has the right to choose whom he saves and whom he doesn't save. Because he's got the right over his creation. He's got the right over his creation. So, did the word of God fake? No, it did not. Because not every Israelite was chosen by God to become the part of the chosen Israel. Only those that came through Abraham, through Isaac, and through Jacob. Those ones will not reject Jesus Christ. Those ones will not be cursed. Those ones will actually be saved. Why? Because God has chosen that they be saved. Not based on anything that they have done or not have done, but based on God's right to choose whom he has mercy upon and to choose who he hardens. Why? Because just like the potter has the right over his clay, just like the molder has the right over his what is molded, he also has, as God, the right over his creation to do with it as he pleases. And we are told, what is that purpose? It is the purpose of election. And Paul continues, he says, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction against vessels, vessels, the potter, the clay, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared again here, beforehand for glory. 
So there's two vessels here. Vessels that were prepared for destruction and vessels that were prepared beforehand for glory. And the reason why God, who wants to show Israel, the reason He has not shown it is because He has endured with much patience the vessels of wrath upon whom that wrath is deserving and is deserved, prepared for destruction. In other words, these vessels were created solely for the purpose of destruction, of being destroyed. In order to make known the riches for his glory, of his glory of to the vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand. Two vessels, vessels of uh, of wrath, of, of, of prepared for destruction, vessels of mercy, prepared for glory. God, instead of destroying the vessels of of red, he has allowed them, he has endured with much patience, so that he can make known his riches to the glory of his glory to the vessels of mercy. To the vessels of mercy. This is the reason why the vessels of red have not been destroyed. Not because of them, not because God doesn't want to destroy them, but because God wants to show the riches of his glory to the vessels of of mercy. And here it comes. Even us, the vessels of mercy, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. And people say, this is not about salvation. It is about salvation. The only reason why the vessels of red the only reasons why the vessels of red that are prepared for destruction still exist is simply because God wants to show the riches of his glory to the vessels of mercy. And the vessels of mercy include not only Jews, but also Gentiles. And here Paul quotes Hosea, where he shows that indeed it was always God's plan for the Gentiles to be to be chosen as well to be part of of, of God's election uh, and, and, and salvation purpose, and also here in verse twenty seven he quotes Isaiah, showing that it was never meant to be the whole of Israel that is chosen, but really only a remnant who will be saved. And also, if the Lord of hosts had not blessed us. us we would have been like Sodom and becoming like Gomorrah. So in other words, it, these vessels of glory do not only come from the Jews, but they come from the Gentiles. And as you can see from the Old Testament, Paul by quoting Hosea, he can show that God already had a plan to include the Gentiles. And secondly, by quoting Isaiah, he shows that it was never God's plan to save the whole of Israel, but it was always God's plan to save only a remnant. We will continue with verse 30 next time. But what is important here to realize is that the word of God has not failed simply because Israel has in the main rejected Jesus Christ. Because Israel has failed to receive salvation, it does not mean that 
the word of God has failed. It simply means that God never intended for the whole of Israel to actually be saved, but only those that come from Abraham through Isaac and through Jacob. And why has God done it this way? Because God has the right to choose who gets saved and who doesn't get saved. He has the right to have mercy upon whomever he wants to have mercy upon, and he has the right to not have mercy or harden whomever he wants. And he also has the right out of his creation to choose which uh, part of his creation is for honorable use, and which part of his creation will be left for this honorable use. He's got that right. Paul makes that very clear when he makes a metaphor of a potter and a clay. The potter has the right to do with the clay whatever he wants. Inasmuch as God has the right to do with creation whatever he wants. If he decides, I will only save these ones and these ones, I will allow them to go to their destruction, it is because God has that right. It is not unfair, it is not injustice, and we have no right to question God on his election purpose. This is something that is very hard for a lot of people to understand. God has the right to choose whomever he wants to choose for salvation. And he has the right, out of his same creation, to allow the rest of the people that he has not chosen to follow the logical conclusion to their sinful lives, which is destruction. And this is for his own purpose. We have no right to question God. We have no right to dispute with God. We have no right to challenge God. Because we are mere men. We are clay. He's God. He's the Potter. He has the right over His creation. He has the right over His creation, and we cannot dispute Him or challenge His wisdom. And those of us that are saved, we need to be praising God and thanking Him for His mercy. Thank you very much for watching The Crossroad. If you have any questions that you want to send to, or anything that you want us to talk about, please send it at wordofgodundiluted at gmail.com wordofgodundiluted at gmail.com And please do not keep these messages to yourself. Share them. And don't forget, please subscribe to the channel. It's very important that you subscribe not forget to subscribe and those that you share this message with please ask them also to subscribe to this message we are the clay and god is the potter and he has the right to choose who gets saved and who doesn't get saved amen